Let's, uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 11. I grew up in Haywood County, and uh, when I was growing up, that was a mill town. In fact, they, they, to this day, they call it mill town. It was a, um, <clears throat> there's a paper mill there. It's called Blue Ridge now. It was called Champion back then. And, and if you're from this area, you're probably familiar with that. But uh, it's, it's interesting because everybody I went to school with, I mean, everybody I went to school with, their dad worked at the mill. And the, I think the mill was, I think, I think Canton back then was maybe 5,000 people. It was about, it's smaller than Murphy is now. And then there were like over, over 1,500 employees at the mill, and it was three shifts. So it was like if your dad worked – uh, graveyard shift you knew that was you know 11 at night till 7 in the morning and if you worked uh, if you worked days that was one time so there's three shifts and uh, and then everything revolved around the mill so everything in that town revolved around the mill so uh, every other business depended on the mill to thrive and flourish and it was a really neat way of life you don't get that much anymore uh, because so many manufacturing jobs have gone overseas but uh, I remember I lived, it wasn't a neighborhood, it was like a, a, a gravel road, and uh, we were laughing the other day, I remember I would, if, if I wanted to try to skip school when I was in like kindergarten or first grade, uh, I tried this a couple times and got caught the third time, and then it never worked again, but I would, I would walk real slow because it was a gravel road, it wasn't three miles in the snow uphill both ways, but it was like about a football field, you know, it was, it was maybe 200 yards to the end of the gravel road, and there were there were several kids along that road uh, that, and we would wait at the bus stop. And then what I would do is I would, I would hide behind the, the Arrington's house. They had some apple trees and I'd go in there and hide behind it. And then I'd come back and tell my mama that I missed the bus and it worked twice in kindergarten. And then the third time I got, I got whooped and uh, uh, she, she was on to it, you know, can't keep missing the bus, you know? So, um, but my buddies were uh, in, in that little neighborhood were uh, the Mahaffey brothers. Their daddy was Dewey. He worked second shift. And, uh, and they were Jerry Dean and D. Wayne Mahaffey, Jerry Dean and D. Wayne. And uh, me and D. Wayne got, in, I think we fist fought, we counted one time like 53 times with each other, uh, but we were best friends. And, um, and so then uh, Milltown, you know, that's the way you sort it out. So uh, then there was uh, Ernest Pilkey, but uh, we called him Boy. And Ernest's nickname was Boy because he had a mustache in sixth grade. And we nicknamed him Boy because we would have to remind him he wasn't a man and mustache didn't make you a man. Um, I mean, it accentuates your manhood, if you know what I mean. Uh, and then his sister, Dee Dee, um, we also called him Boy because she was tougher than him. And we remind him that she was the sister and he was the brother. And so we would play our favorite games were like we would play the A-team. Um, but there were only four characters on the A-team, so Dee Dee had, she'd be mad because she'd have to sit out usually. And so I remember, like, I, I have fond memories of my upbringing, and you might have fond memories of your upbringing. Today it seems like, and I think every, you know, this is kind of normal, the older generation, you know, is reminiscent and nostalgic of their generation. But the younger kids in today's generation are growing up in a completely different construct than most of us grew up in. But if you can go back... To, to some place in a person's life from a, from a previous time, a lot of times you can learn a lot about that person, right? Go back, you can learn a lot about a person. If you meet someone and they're kind of mysterious and then you meet their parents or you meet their family or you, you learn more about their situation. Remember there was a boy that worked here named Chad, hard kid from the inner city. Um, he was in our high school program. And I remember getting to know Chad and finding out that his, he, he'd never known his dad. He'd been in prison. He's from somewhere in Atlanta. And his mom 
was an addict and you start to put the pieces of the story together and Chad started to make sense, right? It, it, it made it easier to minister to Chad. We start to put the pieces together of Abraham's story tonight because what most of us know is like the Christian version of the hokey pokey, right? If Father Abraham had many sons and we're marching and spinning around, if you don't get that joke, you didn't grow up in an independent fundamental Baptist church, you should thank the Lord for that too. So, but like there was this song about Father Abraham and it was like, you know, you, there are things you know about the Bible, but when you grow up in the, in, in the, in the church, and some of you didn't grow up in a church. But when you grow up in a church, you sort of get this fairy tale gloss over to where you all, there's almost like, a, is it true? There's a disconnect from the reality of those stories. And, and so what we're seeing in this walk through Genesis, I think everybody would agree, we're seeing the dark, gritty side of humanity that probably goes way beyond what we've seen in, in, in our childhood or in Sunday school lessons or things like that. We're going to see that with Abra, Abram tonight, who will become Abraham later. So a little background on, on Abram or Abraham. He gets 14 chapters. Up to this point, it's been 11 chapters. We're going into the 12th chapter. So 11 chapters given to the creation of the world, the fall of man, the flood, the table of nations, the tower of Babel, the first murder, uh, 19 generations. Took 11 chapters. And Abraham's going to get 14. The entire primeval history of the world got 11 chapters. Abraham's going to get 14 chapters. So this is going to be the first time we really begin to drill into and study one person. Now, in, in the opening verses, we're going to see five blessings. There's five blessings. God's going to say, I will bless, I will bless, I will bless. These blessings will cover protection places, and a plan of redemption and salvation for the world. So protection, provision, uh, and places, and then a plan of redemption for, for the salvation of the world. But up until this point in the book of Genesis, there have also been five curses. So if you go back in our study, Genesis 3.14, 3.17, 4.11, 5.29, and 9.25 were all verses in which God laid out a curse, or he spoke a curse. And then in this one short passage, we're going to have five blessings over against those curses. The clear contrast and focus is that we are introduced to Abraham, and although the world has been under constant darkness and brokenness and curses, the grace of God is going to be evident in the blessings of God promised to Abraham. God still has a plan to raise up a people who will be his own, even in the brokenness. This is like true for us. Is the world broken? <laughs> is the world dark? Is the world screwed up? Did you have a really bad week? Did you have, have, have a really good week? You have a really good week, that stands out because most weeks are not really good, right? You fit, the older you get, you feel the weight of the brokenness. The, the longer you are a believer, the more you feel feel the weight of your own sin, right? And so when we have these moments in Scripture where we're reminded of the blessings of the Lord, we need to take pause and be encouraged by those. Now, I want to go back as we dig into the text. We're going to study chapter 12, but I want to go back to the beginning uh, of, of this um, story of Abram in verse 31 of Genesis 11. And it, it introduces us to his dad in that, in that passage we looked at last night. But it says something interesting. It says, Terah took Abram, his son, uh, he, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, 
his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of, Ter- of Terah or Terah were 205 years, and he died in Haran. So we're introduced to Abram through his father Terah, and it's kind of this family group, but specifically we're told about a place called Ur. Now, if we're going to pronounce that properly, I believe it's actually pronounced Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, but we say Ur typically, and that's what we'll stick with tonight. But we're introduced to it. It's a Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian city. I'm going to give you a quick background because some fascinating archaeological um, studies have been done on this city. So that we're, this, this is in modern-day Iraq, and in the 1920s, there was this guy who's a British, uh, what do you call archaeologist, Indiana Jones-type guy. The hat. Actually, he didn't. I looked him up. There's some pictures of him. I was expecting to see Indy. Uh, this guy had on like knickers, knee socks, true story. A little, a little coat with a tie, and he's like digging in the, in the ground. And I thought, man, the British folks, man, praise the Lord, like for the way history is gone. You know what I mean? Like, like knickers and neckties. Okay, so, and he's, but he did this incredible job digging out this, the, these Mesopotamian cities, and one of the cities he dug out was a city called Ur. Now, in that city, um, they, in that archaeological dig, this is the 1920s, this is a city that was estimated to have been founded in 3800 B.C. Okay, so to find anything is pretty miraculous. You know what I'm saying? Like, this thing's underground. The chances of finding anything are, 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 are not very good, but they went in there and they meticulously dug through this city. And they found, uh, they found some standards that had artwork carved into them that revealed a lot about the city. And this city, here's what we know, that in the city of Ur, this predates by several centuries, a couple thousand years, the pyramids of Egypt. And in that city... It's the first time that people came together and lived with, with trade that was international and internal. There were musicians and there was industry. There were artisans. There was like a network of construction. They had, in the city of Ur, they had a form of indoor plumbing in 3800 B.C. Isn't that crazy? They had, they had very advanced construction practices. They had... Uh, they had written words, and so they had a, an actual education system. And if you really think about this, that's really crazy. 3,800 years before the time of Christ, people were writing stuff. They had letters and words and sentences and a, and a, and a language structure that could be written down. They were a very advanced society, super advanced. They were a wealthy society because there's real clear evidence of like, uh, a, a slave trade and a class system. There were uh, people who were in power over other people. And so it's a really big, big deal to find a city that ancient that had the characteristics that Ur had. But Ur was also a very dark place because what these archaeologists also found out is that Ur was a place where pagan worship was central to the existence of the city. And so in the middle of the city, there was a ziggurat. Remember last week, was it last week, um, when we studied Babel, the Tower of Babel, and that ziggurat was this, you know, it, it wasn't this big thing like Jack and the Beanstalk that goes up into the heavens, but it was a structure 
that in that day was very advanced architecturally. And on top of the ziggurat in Ur, there was what would be akin to like the most holy place for worshiping this goddess who was the goddess of the moon, and her name was Nana. Nana was the, the moon goddess that the people of Ur worshiped. And, there's, and it's fascinating. We're going to include this week in the email that goes out some further reading. Some of you actually like to read stuff like that. Some of you like are already bored because I'm talking about it. Hang in there. All right. And if you don't like to read about it, YouTube is an outstanding resource as long as you watch the right videos. All right. So we'll link one of those. Okay. So, but here's what I want to show you. This guy, this British archaeologist found a a bunch of graves. He found a bunch of, oh, by the way, 300,000 people lived in our estimated. Fascinating, isn't it? 300,000 people. This, now, now that, if I was going to cite my works there, I, I would cite the 3,800 BC and the 300,000 people that came from Wikipedia. All right, full disclosure. But <clears throat> I'm fine with that if you are. Okay, so, uh, okay, but what I want to do is I want to focus one, for just one second here on uh, he, uh, th- this, this archaeological team found a bunch of graves. And in those, I think they found about 1,800 graves. And in among those 1,800 graves, they found 16 graves that they think were the graves of royalty. And I want to show you some pictures from the grave. We pull those up and just, we'll just go in order. From the grave of um, a lady that they, that they actually named, and she's uh, thought to have been a queen. Okay, so each one of these pictures, since our laser pointer broke, and none of us will ever think to go buy batteries for that. Um, so I got arrows to mark the spot. Okay, so... Um, uh, so, okay, what you've got is this is under the edge of the ziggurat or the temple to Nana, okay? So this queen would have been buried as royalty um, to go into the afterlife. This, is, this actually goes down. If you look to the right side, that's a, a ramp that goes down underground into this pit, okay? The arrow is pointing to a chariot, okay? This chariot was pulled by, if you look right here, you can see the bones of a team of oxen. Okay, and then attendants, four attendants who were male, who were thought to have been grooms to be the the attending husbands of this queen in the afterlife. Okay, Uh, next slide. That slide is pointing to four armed guards who were facing the entrance with daggers. Now, at this point, you're going, well, what are the, how did they all get down? Did they just take dead people down there and lay, lay them there? No, what they did is they marched in accompanying the body of this queen, and then they drank poison because they found by each um, set of bones, they found a golden vessel that archaeologists found the residue in thousands of years later preserved in the silt under uh, this, the, the, the salty soil of Ur because of the way that the ocean moved in. It's fascinating. When you start studying archaeology, some of you remember when we went through Joshua and we studied Jericho like this, and, you're, and like stuff starts firing and you're going, oh my goodness, we don't have to be scared of what scientists and historians find that it's going to somehow trump Scripture. It's always going to support what the Word of God says. 100% of the time. Okay? So you got these guards that are, they had... Uh, daggers that are preserved and these cups that they would have drank poison uh, with. Okay, next slide. Uh, I already talked about that. I'm sorry. The, uh, that's where the grooms that were to attend her and um, the oxen were. Next slide. Okay, that chest that it's pointing to is a big old chest and that's actually all around it skeletal remains of what would have been her slaves and attendants in the afterlife. Over 40 people estimated to have been sacrificed in her funeral. 
Ur was a dark place. It's a wealthy place, but it's a dark place, okay? Next slide. All right, now this is where it gets really creepy and sad. Now we've, if you look, we've, we've zoomed out, okay? Do you see it? We've zoomed out. And what it's pointing at right there is the dead bodies of 13 teenage girls who were dressed in ornamental um, clothing, still with preserved golden pieces in their hairs, uh, armlets, uh, bracelets, earrings, and they went in and lay down their lives, drank poison, and died to be her matrons in the afterlife. So that's the place that Abram came from, okay? So when we learn about Ur and we get down to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's a pretty big deal because at this point, listen, you know what Abram's not at this point in the story? Abram's not a homeschool kid who's been catechized and knows the confessions of the, like, like of the church from the age of the Reformation. He didn't go to Sunday school. He, Abram grew up in a city where they did that where they sacrificed 40 people in the death of just one of their people of royalty. Abram grew up in a place where they worshipped the goddess of the moon, and he not only grew up there, but how old is he when this story starts? 75. That's, all he's, that's what he's known. That's what he's known. And so he's in this city, and God calls him out of this place. He's a pagan worshiper. How do, we, how do we know that he worshipped pagan gods, by the way? Because there's question about, well, how do we know that he wasn't following the teachings that had been passed down from Noah? Well, listen to what Joshua says in Joshua 24. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Joshua looks back and says, Our ancestors... Abram and his father, they served other gods in the land of Ur. Out of this city and this darkness, God called Abram. What grace. Let's just pause right here. Just think about this. What did God call you out of? Every one of us has got a story. And I feel like it's important as Christians that we stop and we pause in life. You know, we, we use this saying a lot where we go, preach the gospel to yourself. Every day, remind yourself of the gospel. It's so important if you're a Christ follower to stop and think about where would I be? Where would you be if not for the gospel? Where would you be if not for the work that Jesus has done to bring salvation in your life? Where would Abram be? Where would you be? Where would I be? The beauty of grace is that God called him out of this and Abram had nothing to do with earning that. But God doesn't just call him, he gives him blessings. Verse uh, 2, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who dishonors you. Uh, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So people, land, acceptance, prosperity, familiarity, and security are promised to Abram. Whatever, whatever promises are there, though, God's going to call Abram out of earth. It's a strong picture of God calling him to leave. And this is interesting. He says there at the end of verse 1, I'll call you to a land that I will show you. So it's like he doesn't even know where he's going. You ever, Abram's told to leave at age 75, but he's not even told where to go. You ever, if you're going to go somewhere, like if you can go on a trip, 
Do you Google that area? Do you Google it? Yeah, it, it's, it's, I do. I get on there and I'm like, what, 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 where's a good place to eat? Now, you might think Chick-fil-A is a good place to eat, and it is. But them little taco stands by the side of the road that you gag at when you go by, you're like, who would eat there? Right here, boss. Because them people know what they're doing. They, like, like, like places where, where like you look it up and you're like, oh, no, you're going to have to go down this alley, park, walk over this bridge, and you'll find it behind this one. That's usually the place. So I like to get on Google, and I like to look for places I want to go eat or places I want to stay. And st- look, Abram's being called out, and he doesn't even know where he's going. It's such a, 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 a like hard reality to wrap your brain around. For, for Abraham, he was simply called to leave. But for us, it's kind of the same way. Consider the words of Jesus in Luke 9, verses 60 to 62. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. God calls us, but he calls us out of sin and into eternal life. But we don't always get to know. I, you don't get to know what five years from now we're going to. Who knows? If, if we could go back to this day in 2020, could any of us have predicted what the next two years were going to look like? No. No way. We don't know what God's calling us to always. But we know this, that the writer of, of, of the book of Romans says this, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God calls us, and there are promises associated with the believer and the life that we have in Christ. In fact, verse 3 is actually pointing to the greatest promise, the promise of the gospel. Galatians 3, Paul talks about this. He, two chapters in Galatians are given to Abram's life. Two chapters are given specific, specifically to his faith. What we're promised is the blessing of the gospel. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in verse 3 when he says, uh, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how are we blessed through Abram? Because God would take Abram and give him a son, and out of that son raise up a nation, and in that nation draw attention to one tribe, and in that tribe draw attention to one family line, and in that family line put two prostitutes, a Moabite woman, an adulteress, and through that lineage he would bring Jesus into the world because Jesus would bring redemption and be the hope for all of mankind. The gospel is fulfilled in the promise to Abraham. It's a wonderful promise. Get to verse 4. See how Abraham responds. I keep calling him Abraham. His name's still Abram at this point. We need to do this in real time, you know. So Abram, now the Lord God said to Abram, okay, verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's what you call simple obedience. As a parent, can you appreciate that? Just do what I'm saying, man. Well, we got to have a philosophical. I heard somebody say, uh, we're talking one day, and somebody's like, I, I encourage my kids to ask why. Okay, to a degree. I can get on board with that to a degree. I want to have, have discussion and explain why we do things, but are there those times where as a parent, you just, you just need a little respect? 
why don't you just do what I'm saying right now, right? We've been there. So I feel like sometimes God, there's times where we do need to have that dialogue and press into those hard issues and wrestle with the Lord. God, why do you want me to do this and why that and why? Like, like God's not afraid. We, we use this term a lot where, or this terminology was like God's not afraid for you to press in and ask hard questions and challenge in fact Paul even writes to the Corinthians and says test the spirits but there are times where simple obedience go to bed do you need your kid to have it explained to him why he needs to go to bed right now no go to bed go to bed but okay but I got but I got a question no go to bed go to bed Go to bed, right? Simple obedience. And so Abram just obeys. And then he says, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, all they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. And people call that Bethel, but I grew up in a community right outside of Canton called Bethel. So I'll just always call that Bethel. I think you're supposed to say Bethel. It'll always be Bethel to me. I went to Bethel Elementary School, Bethel Junior High School. Guess this is what it was named after. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So you got Lot and Sarai and the foreshadowing there of what's to come with them. A lot's going to happen with Lot, and a lot is going to happen with Sarah or Syria. Simple, but not easy. The obedience is simple, but the obedience is not easy. So let's walk that back. Okay, so it's simple obedience. God told him to go. He went. Simply did what God told him. But simple obedience is often the hardest obedience, right? It's not easy. It's not easy to follow the call of God. It's not easy to do what God calls us to do always. In fact, it says in verse 6, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. This is a place with foreign people and foreign culture and hostility. And he's to go. If we turn over to Hebrews 11, we get some good insight into what this looks like. Um, broken down in terms of how Abram's faith is acting out or is being played out and being acted out. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to receive, even when she was past the age since, since, she was considered, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumer, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. He jumped down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Though uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in the simplicity of his faith, Abraham teaches us a lot about faith. Hebrews breaks it down for us. His faith is laid out in these sort of steps of obedience. So the faith is what leads to the obedience. Why does he obey? This is critical. 
He obeys because he believes. Abraham believed God, it will later say in the story, and then be quoted throughout the New Testament, and that's what was credited to him as righteousness. He acted in obedience because he believed God. He had faith that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. How did he walk out the steps of his obedience? Well, first, he went, though he didn't even know where he was going. And then in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, he became an exile and a sojourner in a foreign and strange land. Verse 11 and 12, he believed God and eventually received the son of promise a long time after this promise was made. And then in verses 17 and 19 that we just read, he was willing to offer his son as a sacrifice. Why? Because by that point, he believed that God could raise the dead. He believed that God could raise the dead. His faith grew as he acted in obedience. And he comes into the land, and when he comes into the land, he builds altars. What were altars for? Worship and sacrifice. He offered to the Lord offerings of worship and sacrifice. And this is significant because in pagan lands, oftentimes these altars that were altars to the pagan gods would, would be built in, around, or under large trees. In fact, um, when we were in, uh, when we went to Togo, when we were first looking at Togo as a, as a potential partnership where the, um, a couple of families from here were going to go, and we went over there in Togo, West Africa. I never heard of Togo. When that guy called me, and said, I need to talk to you. We're wanting to start a, a camp for kids in Togo. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm like, uh, is that in the Midwest? Like, I'm trying to figure out, is, is that a town? And I was thinking of Toto and the, not the band, but the character. And, the, you know, anyway, I was so confused. He's like, no, we're in West Africa. And I'm like, I never heard of it. Is West Africa a country and Togo's a town in West Africa? Like, and so I have to go look at it. It's this teeny little country. And he said, no, we're on the slave coast. And you've got these countries lined up right there. When you look at the map of Africa, that big western sweeping elbow, all those countries right there, that's where the slave trade occurred. And so go over there. It's also the birthplace of voodoo. And so it's not surprising that there's this dark, demonic feel to that place. And so we get over there. We go. I remember the first thing. Uh, we wanted to, he wanted to expose, go back to what we're talking about with culture. He wanted to expose us to the culture. And so we went, um, we went and met some uh, voodoo priests. And we couldn't actually talk to the priest. We got to talk to like the JV guy, like the guy in training. And so let us in, we introduced ourselves and meet this guy, talking to this guy. It's fascinating because there's this tree there, this massive tree. And he said, that tree's 700 years old. Y'all, that tree was graveyard dead. It was, it was so big and so tall and it was dead. And he said, that tree's been dead for over five centuries. And it had these big burn marks at the bottom. And it's where they would sacrifice animals. And you can, if you follow it on BBC about three or four times a year, it'll make national news that they've sacrificed a person in Togo. Like a big deal, sacrificed them. Because they have this demonic view of human life that goes all the way back to the slave trade and even beyond that to these animistic religions. But I remember there was that tree and then we went to another place and there was this big tree that, that was standing, this tree's 500 years old, and it was standing there at the time of the slave trade. And he said the tribes from the south would go and take people out of Niger and northern, uh, and like parts of Cameroon, Togo, and Benin, and they would bring them down and then they would sell them to the European slave traders. But they would do these, they would march them around these trees and have these pagan rituals and this big massive trees. Like, man, there, there were literally, it's estimated, hundreds of thousands of slaves were marched around this tree and these rituals as a worship offering to the demonic gods of voodoo before they were put on ships and sent out. There's always been this symbolism with trees. And so then here at this pagan worship site, 
Abram constructs an altar. Does Abram understand pagan worship? He came from Ur. He came from Ur. 40 dead bodies with the queen. 13-year-old girls drinking poison. And I don't want to over-contextualize that because we could go right down the path of what we're doing with our teenagers in our culture. Abram gets it like he understands pagan worship, but he constructs an altar and worships Yahweh in fidelity to Yahweh. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. He's going to worship the Lord. And he, and he establishes that place. And then later in that same letter to the Galatians that we just read, what did he say? Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So much symbolism even and, 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 and foreshadowing even to the cross, even in this moment. But there's two contrasts that I want you to think about as he builds these altars. He builds two of them in these verses we just read. The pitching of Abram's tent is temporal. The building of the altars are permanent. You've got these permanent altars that are built and instructed and constructed. And the contrast is that of the dwelling place of Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh is that this land belongs to Yahweh. It's God's. And he worships in three aspects of his worship as he calls on the name of Yahweh it says he calls on the name of the Lord he calls on the name of Yahweh it's exclusive worship it's public worship and it's open worship unashamed open in a Canaanite land worshiping Yahweh where on that ground God would establish his earthly kingdom for his people that would descend from Abram in another generation we get to verse 10 and this this will go through quite quickly and this is the part of the story that throws us off and kind of disturbs us it's it's uh let's let's dive into it now there was a famine in the land so abram went down to egypt to sojourn there for the fam famine was severe in the land uh when he was about to enter egypt he said to sarah his wife i know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance and when the egyptians see you they'll say this this is his wife then they will kill me but they will let you live say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was uh, taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys and male servants and female servants, which we're going to, one of those is going to come back around in the story, right? Hagar. This is where he accumulates female servants in Egypt, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So we get to this part of the story, and it kind of blows our minds. And I just want to give you a couple thoughts on this and then a couple points of application for the whole thing as we prepare to go into this study of Abram. We're going to study a lot about Abram, so tonight's just kind of setting it up in overview. But a couple of thoughts. I want to consider a couple of thoughts, and these verses can be confusing because you go from this point, okay? It seems confusing when you're reading it. It should shock you. You go from this point where this guy... Let, let, let's condense this into bullet points. He, uh, he walks away from Ur and all that pagan world. He builds altars and worships Yahweh in a pagan land. He then goes to Egypt and pawns his wife off into the king's harem. Shocking. I mean, it's a little bit, a little bit, a little, little bit, whole lot, lot, whole lot shocking. So what's going on? Well, 
I want to give Abram a little bit of a break. Um, and I want, to, I want to think about a couple of things. One, one thing I want to, and, and I don't want to overstate this, but have you ever had one of those weeks? Like a bad week. Somebody dies. Something catastrophic happens financially. We had a hard week this week. I'm going to be transparent. We had a hard week this week. Personally, the Holloway Nation had a rough week. Had a hard week. And in the middle of that week, I get on the phone with Tuck, and he said, he's been at Virginia Tech, what, less than three weeks? And he said, I just had the craziest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Just happened. I'm standing here in my room talking to a teammate, a kid named Jaden, a grad transfer from a school further up north. I don't remember where he transferred, but he's a slot receiver, and Tuck and him are getting to be buddies. And he's from Baltimore, and Jaden's talking to his dad. While he's talking to his dad, his dad gets murdered. Jaden's here, Tuck's here, Tuck hears gunshots, sirens, Jaden's yelling, his dad's sitting in, in a rough part of Baltimore, he owns a house, he's remodeling, he's sitting in his car waiting on a refrigerator to be delivered, and somebody comes up and murders him. And he, he said, I need you to pray for me, because I, I don't even know what to do right now. That tr- we've been there that if you've experienced like a traumatic moment that shakes you up where you have a hard time figuring. We have combat veterans in our church who will tell you that you, you, the, the adjusting out of that is just hard, right? Death, trauma. So, like, it was already a crazy week. I had set aside, because this was a big chapter and a heavy text, and then two times I preached yesterday, I'd set aside every morning this week as a study block. All of it got wiped out. Because when you do ministry, some stuff happens, right? When you do life, some stuff happens. When you work at the mill, some stuff happens. Like, when you push dirt or build houses or, 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 or you're a nurse or a teacher, stuff happens, right? Life happens. Sometimes life happens faster than you can keep up with it. Sometimes you get overwhelmed by the circumstances, right? Sometimes that happens. And for Abram, let's just think about at this point, 75 years old, no child. He's left his home. He's nomadic. He has no definitive destination. He thought he was following God, and now there's a famine. He left his people. There's the strain and pressure of that situation. There's the strain and pressure of acclimating to a new culture where they don't want him. If you're from Florida and you moved to Andrews, you know what it's like to not be wanted. Where are you from, Florida? Yeah, I'm from Florida. Like, we're, we're people is what we are. Like, it's okay. We eat food and say words and drive cars and stuff. Like, people from, listen, y'all, for those of us that are from the mountains, Florida people, good folks, Jesus actually saves a lot of them. They can live here. This is a free country, right? So, so, but not for Abram. Like, he's, he's come to this place, and it's, he's conflicted, and it's difficult, and he is starting to be overwhelmed. Think about the circumstances of life. His father died along the way, and he buried him in a foreign land. There's tension mounting within the family group that will explode between he and his nephew. No home. And now there's a famine. Think he felt distressed? Probably. Second, think of how he operated the first 75 years of his life. We do this. You get in a pinch, you get in a bind, and you act the way you acted before Christ had redeemed you and put his spirit in you. You ever do that? Sure you do. That was the old me. But sometimes we fall back to that. 
We tend to still be affected sometimes by our past. and We make decisions that the old you would have made, and then the new you wants to kick yourself for acting like the old you. After all that Abram had been through, rather than focusing on the faithfulness of Yahweh to this point and the fulfilling life of worship that Abram had been experiencing, he focused on the difficulty of his circumstances. What if he would have paused and gone? What if we stay here and just see if God gets us through the famine? That would have been cool. That would have been a cool story. What if, we don't, we don't question God's word. Don't, don't, don't read into what I'm saying. But what if we could pull those 10 verses out? And those 10 verses said, and then this famine came. And God miraculously provided for Abram and his family, and they grew. But that's not the story. And you know what? We can realistically probably identify with Abram's reaction more than if he had done it the other way. Right? He freaked out. And what did he do when he freaked out? He took matters into his own hands. Rather than focus on the faithfulness of Yahweh to this point and the fulfilling life of worship, he focused on the difficulty of his circumstance. He became overwhelmed, and rather than looking at what the Lord had done, he made a rash decision. He went to Egypt, took the matters of survival into his own hands. What might the Lord have shown him? We don't know. Don Barnhouse gives a, a really cool and helpful thought. He was the pastor at 10th Prez in, in Philly for, I don't know, 50 years maybe in the last century. He gives some helpful thoughts. He points out that the Lord often arranges the steps of faith in an upward and difficult direction so that our spiritual muscles will grow strong and we can eventually scale the heights of great blessing. So as we're introduced to this man, what can we learn from him? We are going to learn a lot from him, but as David is the warrior poet, Paul is the missionary, Moses the lawgiver, Peter the great preacher Ruth and Rahab show us the power of conversion Elijah and Isaiah are the great prophets of Israel but it is Abraham who is repeatedly pointed to as the example of faith Romans Galatians Hebrews point us to Abraham and so for us the application is simple this week recognize that you live by faith don't be ashamed or afraid of that apologetics and theology are incredible they're incredible resources for growth and appreciation of what God has done and who God is, as well as a way of defending our faith and our minds. But we need to remember that the scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six, And faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are people of faith and we are people of the word. And as such, we are recipients of the blessing of the gospel promised to Abraham. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this evening your blessing on the hearing of your word, the application of your word. God, as we continue to study through this, this book that chronicles literally the roots of our faith and, and, and the gospel that we believe, and we begin now to be introduced to the specifics of how that gospel would come to be a reality as you raise up patriarchs and then judges and then kings and prophets and priests and and covenants are extended and made and promises are given all to ultimately prepare the world for the coming of the son of man for the coming of the Christ child the one who would bring us into the promises that you made to Abram so so long ago 
God, I pray we'd learn from Abram what it looks like to live by faith, even in our own weaknesses and foolishness sometimes, that we would learn from him and that we would um, love you more and be obedient to you and that we would practice simple obedience, that we would at times ask the hard questions. Why? Why would you have me do this? And we'd wrestle through it, but that we would know that there are times where we just need to say, yes, Lord, and in simple obedience, follow you. Help us to have the discernment to know the difference. And God, I pray that tonight you would be honored by our response in song to the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.